This morning, we're going to continue onward in our series in Luke, and we're going to be at the first part of Luke chapter 7. But I wanted us to take a moment and just kind of think about what is faith. We have lots of, of different things that faith seems to be talked about. It seems to be something that is discussed. And truth be told, we kind of see two things at work. We see on the one hand, our, our culture and our world saying faith is just that which is believing in fairy tale or things which you cannot see, and what they mean is things that do not exist. And then the opposite side, which is reason, and that everything needs to be factual and substantial. And I think as Christians, sometimes we, we play into that argument. We even play into the argument around... Where was the world created from? Did God create the world? Is there, where did the evolution and the Big Bang come from? And we, we get locked up in these arguments as if one is an argument of faith and if one of, is an argument of reason. The truth is, both we as Christians in that argument, as well as the culture who is against that argument, are disingenuous. Because the truth is both arguments require faith. The question of where did God come from is answered only through faith. The question of how Big Bang got there is only answered through faith because nothing has ever been created out of nothing. Something cannot be created. Matter cannot be created out of nothing. It requires an element of faith. And I think one of the things that happens in our faith, in our relationship, is we're so desperate at times for people not to consider what we're saying as foolish, and we forget that the gospel message is one of foolishness. It's designed to shame the world, to expose the foolishness of the world, to bring humility, and that in Christ, to the world, the gospel is foolishness, but to the believer, it is what? It is all hope. It is our salvation. And so, as followers of Christ, as we've been talking over the last few months, as we've looked at Luke chapter 5 and 6 and 7, and we've been talking about this, this desire and need to be praying for those intentionally who are not, who have not experienced the, the hope of salvation through Jesus that it's important that we understand what our faith is rooted in, and it's important that we understand what our faith is. More importantly, it's also important to understand that it is the means by which we please God, our faith. So many of us think that our pleasure to God is simply tied and rooted to what we do. But God says that his pleasure is found in our faith. And so this morning, that's what we're going to be seeing. We're going to be seeing a picture of one who is not a part of Judaism, who is outside. In fact, he's an oppressor of Israel. And Jesus will exclaim that he has found no one, not one in Israel who has such faith as this man. 
So let's go ahead and stand together this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. And this is what it says. It says, After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Lord God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the hope that you have demonstrated and shown to us, God, through your word. May it be that we would be a people of faith. That you might exclaim about us that there are none in all of this region that have the faith of those of Redemption Hill Church. Of those in every believing church here in this county. Father, may our faith be great in you. May our hope be anchored in you. Lord God, I pray this morning that you would move me aside and that you would come forth and it would bring forth your word and power. That your spirit would dig deep into our hearts this morning and expose the things that we are putting our faith in and expose those areas where we need to be putting it completely and fully in you. May we be transformed today and renewed in you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. One of the things that I just want to share with you real quickly 
One of the reasons that we read God's Word every Sunday is because the model in Scripture is not simply the reading of God's Word where we are placing it upon our own mind, but is the hearing of God's Word as well. And so part of that is that we read together the Scripture so that we might hear God's Word, not simply just read God's Word. There's something about the hearing of God's Word. And we're told here that after Jesus had taught and that it was done in the hearing of His people, that He came to Capernaum. And what we're going to see this morning is that life-giving faith trusts in Jesus and His marvel-producing grace. Life-giving faith trusts in Jesus and His marvel-producing grace. Simply, it's faith, Jesus, and His grace. That's what we're seeing this morning. And so this life-giving faith is at the center of our salvation and the ministry of Christ-likeness. In the last two weeks that we've been in the Gospel of Luke, we've discuss this idea of the ministry of Christ-likeness. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be pursuing the ministry of Christ-likeness. That's what God is wanting for us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that what we really want in our life? Because the way that is determined is what I am actually pursuing. If all I have is the ministry of Christ's likeness, is that enough for us? If you lose your house today, if you lose your looks today, I lost them a while ago. If you lose your spouse today, if you lose your job today, if you lose your car today, if you lose your parents today, if you lose every ounce of income today, is the ministry of Christ's likeness being in His likeness enough for you? That's the question that Jesus is posing to each of us. Where are you finding your contentment? Where are you finding your sufficiency? Where are you finding your strength? Where are you finding your joy? Are you a person who always needs the new and shiny thing? You get bored real easy? Are you finding your contentment in the beauty of Jesus? That's the question that Jesus has been asking. Because Jesus told us at the beginning of, of, of Luke 6 that those who are blessed actually look radically different than the world. If you are assessing your blessing based on what you have in this life, you're missing the mark. Now, we can thank God for what we have, and we can look at God and say we're blessed for having those things. But God says that's not why you are blessed. That the blessing of His kingdom is significantly different than the blessing of the world. And if you are choosing to seek the blessing of the world at the expense of His kingdom... then you are not blessed at all. That's what he's saying. Remember that he said that that was a woe. Woe to you. And so he has done this and he shared with us this picture of what it means to love as he has loved. 
And so he's showing us this ministry of Christ-likeness, of being a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And he shows us that it's only, it is the only means by which we can love others as God has loved us. And we saw that last week. This call to love mercifully as Christ has mercifully loved us. And so he comes down the hill, this mountain of which he'd been speaking on a plateau, and he comes down the mountain and he enters Capernaum. Now, at the heart of our passage this morning is verse 9. Everything builds to it and then builds away from it. And in verse 9, we see this passage that he has regarding this centurion. He says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So let's take a look at how we get there. In verses 1 through 2, it says, after he had finished, after, after he had finished all his sayings, which was the teaching of what is required to be a follower of him, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now a centurion was a Roman military or commander, military leader or commander, and given the name, a centurion often governed or commanded a hundred legionnaires. Now legionnaires are basically what you picture of in the movies, the Roman soldiers that have these huge, massive you know, garb on, armor on. They've got the shields. They've got the javelins. They've got the spears. They've got the swords. They're considered the best of the Roman soldiers. Now, a junior centurion would oversee at least these 100 men. As they got more experienced, as they survived, as they were war-battled, they were war-tested, they were then put in charge of a cohort. And a cohort was comprised of many different centuries. So several groups of a hundred of these legionnaires. And so we know that this centurion was a, a leader of at least a hundred and could have been anywhere up to 5,000 men. Now, what's unique about him as well is that the centurions were considered to be oppressors of Israel. Israel was under the captivity of Rome and it was the job of the centurions to enforce that captivity, to enforce Israel's compliance. Now, this centurion has a unique attitude towards his servant. It says that he was highly valued by him. Now, under Roman law at this time, if you had a servant that couldn't work, if he had suffered injury or was sick, it was the right of the master to kill the slave who could not work. So it is odd in this case for him to be actually this concerned. 
So verses 3 through 5 continue. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, most likely because the centurion was a Gentile and had a general sense of his unworthiness, given that he was a Gentile, the centurion sends the elders of the Jews to ask for healing. However, as they plead with Jesus to listen to this request by the centurion, they actually appeal to Jesus on behalf of the centurion's merit. They say that he's worthy. And so they go before Jesus saying, listen, he loves our nation. I mean, come on, Jesus, not only does he love our nation, but he built you a synagogue. He was a part of this. Come on, do it for him. He's a good guy. Now, some of us are kind of like that with Jesus ourselves, aren't we? We're seeking to say, gosh, you know what? If I just do X, Y, and Z here, if I, if I just live this pure life, if I'm just in the Word today, if I just don't opt to sin this afternoon, come on, God, give me a break. Lord, you know what I'm doing for you. You think you ought to lighten up a little bit? Come on now. Do you remember what I did before? Do you remember that time where I, I, I sacrificed my car for the person that, you know, needed a ride and God, I'm here for you. That's kind of how we treat God at times. That's how the Jewish elders approached Jesus. They pled on the merit of the centurion. Come on, God, do it for him. He's worth it. He's worthy. Now, Romans 3, 9 through 12 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, we're all sinners. None of us are worthy. Not one of us. Our merit is not what makes us worthy. And I, I, I want to emphasize this this morning. Many of us who come to faith live as if our merit is what makes us worthy before Jesus. We're trying to find the checkbox. Just tell me what to do. What Christ is calling of you is to live by faith in submission to Him. We're always looking for that rule, that line. How far is too far? Remember in youth ministry, I used to tell students, man, the wrong question to ask is how far is too far? Because you've already gone too far. Like you're asking the wrong question. You're trying to get right to that line where you can decide whether you're honoring God or dishonoring God. 
What God wants is a heart that says, Lord, what do I need to do to honor you? And who do I need to be to honor you? And we live by faith. And that line might look a little bit different, but Scripture actually tells us, and are we in agreement with that? See, when we're asking to find out where the line is, what we're really saying is, I would prefer to be on the side of sin rather than the side of righteousness, but God, I'll take it right up to the edge. It's a heart that's actually not submitted to Jesus. It's a heart that is floundering. It's still looking at sin as being good and great and better than what Christ has to offer. It's finding contentment not in the things of God, but in the flesh. It's not living by faith. It's not living in a place of seeking Christ. You see, in fact, it's precisely because we're unworthy that we need Jesus and Him alone. So, what we begin to see in this passage then really are characteristics then of life-giving faith. Life-giving faith, faith that saves, faith that continues to allow us to walk in the freedom of his salvation. And the first thing is it begins with humility that places confidence in Jesus in the authority of his word, not one's merit. It begins with humility that places confidence in Jesus and the authority of his word, not one's merit. Verse 6 says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. he automatically recognizes who he is in the face of Jesus. Here's the thing. He doesn't even attempt to come into Christ's presence because he recognizes who he is. Do we recognize who we are apart from Jesus? That to come into God's presence apart from Jesus is to our own destruction. If we understand that, then we begin to see the importance of faith. But until we understand that, we will always see Jesus as just our Savior who's a good guy, who lets me come because I know that I'm a sinner, and I know I have some sin, but God's real tolerant of it. Don't confuse God's patience with tolerance. He is patience so that we might repent. He is not tolerant so that we might remain in it. Do you see the difference? And as believers, there are times that we use grace as a mechanism for His tolerance, confusing tolerance for patience. Do not think that God is tolerating sin. He has a greater thing at work here, which is a love for you that causes Him to be patient so that you might repent. 
so that I might repent. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What he's speaking of here is that all faith, genuine believing faith, saving faith, life-giving faith, begins with humility. A recognition of who I am in the face of who he is. A recognition that I don't bring anything to the table, that I am unworthy apart from him, and it is only in Christ that I am worthy. Because Christ in me is the one who is worthy. David Gooden points out that physical healing is always a shadow of the spiritual reality of the spiritual healing our world needs through Jesus Christ. Moving from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, faith, according to this story, is not confidence that we've done the best we could, that God will assess our merits generously. Faith is abandoning trust in our works and merit and any thought of deserving salvation and relying totally and without reserve on the person of Christ and the authority of His Word. That God's Word can be trusted. How is it that we can have life-giving faith in the midst of any kind of circumstance? It is because Jesus is the one who is the source of our faith. Jesus is our life. It's the question that we have to answer. If all is stripped away, is Jesus my life? What are you finding of affirmation and affection from? Are you finding it from other people at work? Are you finding it from the opposite sex? Are you finding it from relationships and friendships? What is it that you're finding your own affirmation from? One of the greatest reasons that we are so discontent is because we're not comparing ourselves to Jesus, but we are comparing ourselves to the world. One of the greatest dangers of social media is that social media constantly draws us to itself and make no this is not something that is passive, but is active, where it's a constant set of comparisons. We were never supposed to know this much about your life or my life. We weren't. And honestly, to be really, really honest, more people spend time on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat than they do in the Word of God. And we better believe that that makes us discontent. It does. It puts us in a place where we are knowing about people rather than knowing about God. And God has called us to be known by Him and for us to know Him. I know that when I was 16, I could tell you every baseball player and football player and everything under the sun. Couldn't tell you much about the Word of God, but I could tell you what the back of a baseball card said. I think sometimes we shift, don't we? 
We just moved from the baseball cards and cereal boxes to the computer. And somehow in there, the word of God gets lost. See, God's call for us is to place our confidence in his word, the authority of his word. What he says is true. As many of you know that when I got sick two years ago, that when things had come back in the previous year and a half, God had laid upon my heart this desire to begin memorizing Scripture. And so each week I would memorize Scripture. And I remember looking at particular passages, and I won't go through the ways of how I decided to memorize Scripture, but there is a method to it in my own quiet time where I started looking at ways. And I'm kind of a creature of habit, so I find these funny ways, and you guys would find it pretty odd as to how I pick Scriptures. But I started going through these Scriptures and started memorizing these passages, and I got to scriptures that I really felt had no relevance in my life. I remember thinking, I'm memorizing these passages, but God, when am I ever going to use them? Because these over here, these are super helpful right now. But these other ones, one, they're hard to learn, and I don't really know when I would use them. The truth is that when I got sick, it was the passages I thought were not important to me that God used in my life to strengthen me. It was those verses and the moments that I wasn't ready for what was happening next that God brought those passages to mind. Colossians 1, 11 through 14, may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all patience and endurance with joy. What? Why? Because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. It's not about this life. Our faith in Christ is about Jesus and living our life for him. And so it begins with humility that puts confidence in Jesus and the authority of his word, that he will do what he says, that he will fulfill his promises, that he is more beautiful and more glorious and more joyful than anything that I can pursue in this life. That he is the only thing that will bring me fulfillment. I used to live next door to a neighbor and it seemed like every five years he was chasing after a new dream, something new. And when I say chasing after, I mean putting thousands and thousands of dollars into this new hobby. And his hobby changed every three to five years. And as we would talk and we would talk in his garage, there was just this deep sense of a lack of contentment in his life. Faith in nothing. Not understanding what God had for him or not even understanding who God is or was and what he'd done. Psalm 149.4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns them, the humble, with salvation. Our salvation is directly tied to our humility. When somebody speaks of faith, it requires humility. They are not separate 
Psalm 107, 20 through 21 says, He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. He's given His word to us to bring healing in our life. His word can be trusted. We need to be a people who are drinking from that well regularly. Secondly, life-giving faith brings healing which initially is unseen. It brings healing which initially is unseen. We see this where after Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion, we're told, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What great news. They had no idea if Jesus had healed or not. I wonder if they even had forgotten about it. Jesus had just said, imagine this. Imagine Jesus had looked at you and said, I marvel at you. Well done, good and faithful one. That's what he means. Well done. Now there's one other time in Scripture here where Jesus marvels, but it's actually at the disbelief of the Jews. It is the very thing that Christ marvels at. And we're told here that when they went home, they found the servant well. When we live by faith, not looking for the rules and not constantly trying to push the edge, but when we live by faith, submitting ourselves to Him, the Spirit of God works in our life and He begins to heal us in areas where we don't initially see. It's in unseen areas. For many of us, we, we see our faith as kind of this trying effort. I tried, but I failed. I tried, but I failed. The reality is, is that faith is one of submission and it does involve failure. We choose to submit and we choose not to submit. But when we choose to live a life submitting to Him, He heals us. The Spirit works within us and does work that we could never do on our own. And that work is initially unseen. And then all of a sudden we start seeing in ourselves, man, that desire is going away. That desire is actually changing. You know, I would have gotten really angry here, but I, I'm not. This is an area that I would have lusted in the past. But I'm finding you give me strength not to. That work is initially unseen. When we live by faith, he brings healing. When we live by the law, it may look like we have healing but it simply brings frustration. Effort comes when we live by the law and not by faith. We will grow tired of living the Christian life when we choose to do it by the law rather than by faith. We will be exhausted. It's one of the reasons that Jesus says all those who are heavy laden He's not just talking about the burdens of life. He's actually talking about the burden of sin. And he's talking about the burden of the law, which is it continues to expose your sin, of which you have no victory over. 
That's what he's saying. Come to me. Rest in me. Live by faith. I will change that. And I think one of the reasons that our joy is often robbed is because we choose to live by the law rather than live by faith. It's an exhausting thing. You ever tried to look at tax law? I like administrative things. I can't stand tax law. It's horrible. And that's for those of you who are accountants, by all means. But tax law is grotesque. It's a big, big, big book. You ever try to follow it? There's, it's, it's got nuances everywhere. It's cumbersome. It's laborious. And it creates fear. Because I might have just missed one little thing. That's what the law does to us. When we choose to live by the law, there is no freedom. It's cumbersome. But when we live by faith, we submit to the heart of God, knowing what God's will is for us. And then we seek him. God, what do you want me to do in this area that seems to be somewhat gray? What am I going to do that honors you? Not... God, how far can I go without displeasing you? Right? See the difference? Philippians 1, 6-8 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to a completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus will complete the work in us as we submit to him in faith. It will bring healing in the way that he desires. Third, it anchors hope to Jesus' compassionate character and work. Life-giving faith anchors hope to Jesus' compassionate character and work. It says, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great cloud went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, that is, the stand on which the coffin rests. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Our hope is anchored to the compassionate work and character of Jesus. You see, Jesus, in his compassion, displays this compassion through giving life to dead people. Each of us were dead in transgression. Each of us were dead in our sins. If you need to look any farther than this idea that Jesus is compassionate, he's compassionate towards you and towards me, and he has given us, dead people, life through his death and resurrection. That's what he's done. His compassion is seen in the truth that he has given life to dead people. His compassion on this mother says, do not weep. Do not weep. He walks up to her. Notice that she does nothing for it. Notice we're not even told about this woman's faith. Because we don't know if she was 
a follower of Jesus. What we know here is he says, do not weep. And he has compassionate honor. And this is the cross. That Jesus, knowing that there would be some who respond in faith and some who don't, he went to the cross for all. For everyone. His compassion extended to everyone, but applied to those who have faith. You see, we anchor our hope not to the things of this world, but to Jesus and his compassionate character and work. Last week I shared with you that God tested me in the morning before I got here having to look for my keys and being frustrated with my kids and what it really meant to love Christ likewise and how I had failed that morning. This morning on my way in, I was frustrated with some things about my health, and I I just began to think about this passage. My hope cannot be anchored in good or bad news. My hope must be anchored in Jesus. And if I allow my hope to waver into the circumstances of this life, it will rob me of the joy and of the life that God has given Many of you know an old saying that God gave me during a season in 2015 was you have to stop living to die and start living to live. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We live to live regardless of our circumstances because our hope is not anchored to the circumstances, but it is anchored to Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you genuinely believe that the Lord is good apart from what you experience in this world that is not good? Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because of Jesus, we now have access to the Father. That's our hope. He's our source of strength, our source of power, And he is the source of our eternal life. Our hope is not anchored to anything but Christ, the compassionate character and work. So life-giving faith begins with humility. It places confidence then in Jesus and the authority of his word. It brings healing, and it's anchored to the hope found in the character and work of Jesus, the compassionate character and work of Jesus. So finally, we see something that sums up everything in this passage. We see verse 9, which we've read a few times, I tell you, not even to Israel have I found such faith. But it says that when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And verse 16 through 17 says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. 
And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What we see here is that the source of marveling for Jesus and mankind are revealed. Jesus marvels in life-giving faith. Jesus marvels in life-giving faith as mankind testifies in the marvel of His grace. As mankind testifies in the marvel of His grace. I want us to answer a real question here. Knowing that faith is what pleases God, if we are not in awe of who He is, why are we trying to convince others that He's worth following? You see, it is actually from a position of awe and marvel at what God has done and who He is that actually carries the weight of our testimony. And so if all we see is that Jesus is this kind of get-out-of-hell-free card, then our convincing is going to be weak. And we will not be motivated in times where we need to be pushed forward into intentionally testifying to this grace in the presence of the lost. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If we are going to have an impact on those around us with the gospel... We need to be praying that we too might be in awe of who he is. Because if I am seeking to convince somebody that they need Jesus when I myself am finding greater contentment in the things of this world and the images that we want to perceive, then I will never convince them that Jesus is enough because my life will display something totally different. my life will actually work against the testimony of the Word. But do I really believe that what pleases God is my faith? My submitted, life-giving faith? Because we're told here in 1 Timothy 1, 12-16, it says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful appointing me to his service. Are you grateful to be serving Jesus? That's where he wants us. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. We talked about this last week, about judgment and coming in front of others. We are always going to feel judged if we haven't made a decision that what we were doing is something that we should be stopping if we have not made a decision wholly for Jesus and we like certain sin in our life or dancing on sin, when those things are mentioned or people try to come alongside us, we will always feel judged by them. But if somebody judges us and we have submitted our life to Jesus and we are saying, I want all of Jesus, who cares what somebody else thinks because it is put under the blood of Jesus? If Christ bore our shame, then we bear that shame no longer. 
regardless of who finds out about our past. So he says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You have a purpose, and I have a purpose, and it is one and the same. We are to be his servants We are to be a people walking in life-giving faith, not living double-minded lives, saying that we have faith, but placing our confidence and our joy and our hope in the things of this world. May we be a people who live solely in Christ. And as we live in Christ, may we know that he marvels at our faith, And in the marveling of this faith, may our lives testify as we walk in awe of Christ, declaring his truth and his transformation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for loving us well. Thank you for giving us faith, opening our eyes to see it, opening our eyes to see the need for it. And thank you, God, for allowing us to live in your righteousness rather than in attempts of our own. May we know you're no longer burdened by the law of trying to simply just live right, but may we be strengthened in your faith, knowing that as we submit to you, you are the one changing and working within us. May the life-giving faith of Redemption Hill Church and the churches within this community that proclaim you, may they testify of your truth and of your glory to all those within this community. And may that report be made known. And we ask this in your name. Amen.